0: hey uh last weekend we started talking about how important it is for us as the creek church Uh, to know what type of church we want to be and to know what type of church that we don't want to be. And because we can understand what type of church that we want to be and don't want to be, it helps us become the church that we believe the times uh, requires us to be and more importantly, uh, the church that God desires for us to be. And so last week we kicked off this series by talking about the church of Antioch. And we said, hey, when it comes to the church of Antioch, we want to be like that church because they were the first church uh, to invite in and welcome Gentiles uh, into the family of God, into the local church because Christianity began in Jerusalem among Jewish Christians and then a group of Christians who were Jewish up in Antioch decided to invite Gentiles into the church. And that was a big deal because it was in spite of history of animosity, you know, a history of animosity and a history of prejudice, a history of discrimination, uh, generations of mischaracterization, and. Generations generations of, you know, stereotypes. And in spite of all of that, those first Jewish Christians in Antioch, they looked at the Gentiles and said, you are welcome into the family of God. And the reason that this is a big deal, and the reason when we talk about Antioch, we think to ourselves or should think to ourselves, we want to be like that church, because these Jewish Christians took a step in the direction of a people they had been told all of their life to walk away from. And so when it comes to the Cree Church, I want us to be that type of church. I want to be the type of church where everybody's invited in and everybody is welcome. And so at Antioch, everybody was so different. And they were so different that perhaps the only thing they had in common was their faith in Jesus. And there in Antioch, old identities and old classifications passed away. And it says in the book of Acts that at Antioch, Jesus' followers were first called Christian. And Christian was a new class of people where it didn't matter what class of person you were. Everybody was welcome into the church. And so when people began to look into the church at Antioch, it didn't make any sense to them how people so different from one another could actually love one another and consider each other to be family because they all lived in a world that said this, differences among people limit decency. Among people, and that's kind of you know the working law of the land at that particular time. It really wasn't stated; it's just the way that it was. If you were different from people, you weren't very diff- decent to those people. If you were different from people, then you created distance between you and the people that you were different from. But at Antioch, there was this incredible diversity. Matter of fact, it was the first diversity that was introduced to Christianity. A group of people who had different perspectives, different opinions, uh, different points of references, different theologies, uh, different cultures that they've all been raised within. And now all of a sudden, here they are in the local church together. And it would have been real easy for all of those differences to create distance between them. And it would have been real easy to allow all of those differences, to allow them to treat each other in a way that wasn't decent. But that's not how the first Christians did it. They were very diverse, but they didn't allow it to create distance and they continued to be more than decent. They were loving towards one another. They didn't allow differences to create distance. They actually closed the distance between the differences. They didn't walk away. They walked towards each other. And this was a big deal because when it comes to diversity within the local church, whether it's this church or the church down the street or the church, you know, big church, capital C, when it comes to diversity in the local church, Diversity can be of great profit or it can be a great liability depending on how we handle it. And I think Jesus understood this. And this is why Jesus, on the night that he's going to be arrested, he prayed this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said this. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. Talking about his original disciples. I pray also for those. And you're part of those. He was praying for future disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them that all of them, my present disciples and all my future disciples, that all of them may be one. Everybody say one. One. That they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that, so if you have your Bible in front of you, you have your iPad, you have your iPhone, this is that place that you highlight, you circle this, you you make a note of this because this is the reason why Jesus is praying this particular prayer. It's one thing to know what Jesus prayed, but it's even a better thing to know why Jesus prayed what he prayed. And he said, so that the world, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so here's what Jesus knew. As Jesus looked down into the future, because Jesus knew all things, he knew that the church would eventually be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-racial. He knew that the church would have people with different skin colors and different histories and different experiences and different theologies and different points of view and different points of reference. Jesus knew that that would be what the local church would look like. And he desired for all of us that our differences would not lead to distance between us. He desired that our differences would not cause us to be indecent towards one another because that's our natural instinct, to move away from people that we're different as. You know, if they're different from us, we move in the other direction because we like to be with people who are like us, who think like us, see the world like us. We don't necessarily like to be in circles of people that they're nothing like us. But he said, the local church is a place where people who have nothing else in common can rally around Jesus. And so don't let those differences cause distance between you and certainly don't allow differences to cause you to create an environment where you feel uh, the liberty to treat people indecently and so Jesus he knew this and he prayed about this and the reason that he prayed about this is because he said the way that we treat one another relationally The way that you as a Christian, the way that I as a Christian, the way we as a local church here at the Creek Church, the way that the church treats each other, the way that churches treat churches, but specifically and personally for us here at the Creek, how we treat each other relationally can give people on the outside a reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That that is our perhaps greatest apologetic or the defense of our faith is how we relationally Treat one another, how we talk about one another to each other, behind each other's back, the grace that we extend, the forgiveness that we give. That's how we prove to a watching world that Jesus is who he claims to be. And Jesus said, treat each other in a way that you always keep in mind that those on the outside are going to find how you treat each other a reason to believe or they're going to find it as a reason not to believe. Because the idea is this. Unity inside the church results in credibility outside the church. Or oneness inside the church creates influence among those outside the church. And as a church, we can either give people on the outside, we can give non-believers a reason to believe, or by the way that we treat one another, we can give people a reason not to believe. And I don't want to be that church that gives people who don't believe a reason not to believe. I don't want to be that church where people on the outside says, Hey, look at that. Look at how they treat one another. Look, look, look at how nasty they are. Look at how much they talk about each other. Listen to how much they gossip about people and how hateful they are and how they carry around grudges and, and just look at them. I, I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't want to be that church that gives people on the outside a reason not to believe in Jesus. And, and I know that you understand this because you've probably experienced this at some point in the other. You know, many of you, many of us, Uh, We experienced this inside the church and and it made us not want to be part of the church. Uh, It actually made us want to leave the church and some of us left the church and some of us walked away from faith and some of us walked away from Jesus because of the way we saw Christians treating each other. And and we saw, you know, some of the supposedly best people we knew treating people the worst way possible. And, And there was just something within us that knew, you know what, it's not supposed to be that way. We didn't even have a chapter or verse, but we just knew it wasn't supposed to be that way. Jesus' followers are not supposed to treat each other that way. And most of the time when churches acted that way, it was over something silly. It was, you know, and to talk about some of these things, from where we are right now, you all are such an incredible church there in Williamsburg, Somerset. I mean, you're some of the best people I know. And and to talk about some of the silly stuff that churches, you know, fight about and Christians fight about and get upset about, it, it almost seems irrelevant, but it's not. Sometimes it seems so far away, but it's not. It's all around us. Christians who argue, literally, about the color of the carpet. Well, I want red, I want blue, I want purple. Purple's royalty, and God is royal. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords, so we need purple carpet, you know? And it's just like, no, we want red, it's the atonement, the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ trumps all things, you know, and, and it's the blue, it's, well, it's heaven, we're going to heaven, you know? It's Christians are arguing about the craziest things. I, I talked to a friend of mine, a uh, really good friend of mine, he's a pastor, and he was telling me about, they just, you know, they had a business meeting, uh, and, and it really, it got heated. I mean, there was a lot of tension in the air because they were, they were debating something really really important. And, and the discussion on the floor was, you know, should, should they start buying silk flowers or real flowers for the communion table? Because everybody knows, you know, the type of flowers you have on the communion table really does change the way you experience the supper of the Lord. And, and, and so, you know, and, and, and some people say, well, you know, silk is a better budgetary investment because they last longer. And some said, well, to buy real flowers, that really suggests that we care about this. You know, Christians, I grew up in a church that split over stringed instruments. There was half the church that didn't believe that it was right to play stringed instruments inside of church. Even though the church already had a piano and an organ, they would never bothered to look inside of a piano before. So they were breaking their own laws. And so they, they actually had a vote, and, and half the church on a Sunday night, I'll never forget it. For the rest of my life, I was a kid sitting back three-quarters of the way back in church, and I watched half the church get up and walk out on a Sunday night. Half of them I were related to. And, and, and then the other half that stayed, I was related to them too, so it was great. And, and so, you know, the family dynamic after that, Christmases were spectacular. And, and so that was a local church, and I'm like, it's not supposed to be that way. Now, if you're new to the creek, I, I want you to know we are determined not to be that church. We are not a church that invites in drama. We're not a church that invites in bickering. We're just, we don't want to be that church we want to be someone's reason for believing not their reason for not believing so back to the story at Antioch Antioch they were always taking steps in the direction of people far from God so as Gentiles began to flood into the church they sent out Paul and Barnabas to go make new churches because now that everybody's welcome in it made sense to send Paul and Barnabas out to the world so that's exactly what they did and Paul and Barnabas went out and they went from city to city all along the Mediterranean rim and they went from city to city to city in the Roman Empire and they started telling people about Jesus one of the cities that Paul went to and Barnabas went to was a city called Corinth and Paul went there and he would preach and teach and he would help start a church and matter of fact he would stay there for 18 months a year and a half and for a year and a half he would stay there and he would teach and preach and help make disciples and he would help get this church up and moving Now, Corinth, it's understandable that Paul wanted to go to Corinth and that he found it to be, you know, a really influential city because Corinth was famous in the first century world. Uh, It was a very busy city. Lots of people traveled in and out of Corinth. It was really in the crosshairs of north, south, east, west travel. There was a lot of commerce, a lot of trade that happened in Corinth. But the thing about Corinth in the first century was this. They were famous. Everybody knew about the city of Corinth because they were famous for their vices, and in particular, they were famous for their loose sexual ethic. And so anytime someone was a bit loose sexually and uh, people would just, you know, have a little saying for it. Like, you're, you're acting like a little Corinthian. You're acting like a little Corinthian. You know, if you like to sleep around, you're a Corinthian. Uh, you, you, you like to hook up with somebody every other night. Hey, you're a Corinthian. You, you, you remind us of the people in Corinthian. So that's what they were famous for. And so that was the city Paul stayed 18 months. And it was a very diverse city, had Romans, had Greeks, had Jewish people, had all these other, you know, ethnicities represented there. And so here's this church full of diversity, full of difference. And so Paul leaves and he leaves leadership in place and he goes on and a couple years later he's in Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, he gets a report uh, from the city of Corinth about how things are going and things aren't going well. And so it bothered Paul, it broke his heart. Matter of fact, it it made him a bit angry. And what he found out was, what he was told, the church at Corinth, they're struggling. They're struggling relationally and they're struggling morally. The church was a mess. It was tragic, but it's also encouraging to know that the church, which are made up of people like you and me, that we at times can be a mess. At times, Jesus' followers can be an out-and-out mess. Sometimes we can struggle relationally. Sometimes we can struggle morally. That's what was happening at Corinth. They were struggling. They they were like fish swimming upstream. They were like trying to push, you know, dead weight up a hill. They, They were struggling. And so Paul writes a letter to them to kind of address what's happening. And so this is what he writes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree. Everybody say agree. All of you agree with one another in what you say. In what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you wouldn't be torn apart relationally. That you wouldn't be ripped apart relationally. That you wouldn't be at odds with one another. Create factions among each other. Cliques among each other. One clique against another clique against another clique. Or coalitions of cliques against cliques. He said that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and thought. And so here's what I love about what Paul did. This was genius, and sometimes we read the Bible way too fast and we miss the richness of it. But the first thing that Paul does is he reminds them that they're family. He says, Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. And he reminds them that they're family. And the reason I think that Paul reminded them that they're family is because Paul knew what we all know families are all jacked up, there's no perfect family, families always have a mess. It's been my experience that every family has a mess somewhere. Every family's got that crazy joker, that crazy uncle, that crazy aunt. And what I've noticed is that everybody who has someone crazy in their family, it's never them that's the crazy one in the family. It's always someone else in your family that's crazy. But the good news is they look at you and say, you're the crazy one. So everybody in their family looks around and, you know, everybody's got something in their family that's not right, that's messed up. and so. Paul writes to them to put in their mind about the ideal family, the way the family's supposed to be, the way the family of God is supposed to be because within the family of God and within the family the way it's supposed to be, family is a place where you don't have to be perfect in order to be accepted. If that were the case, none of us would have a family. If you had to be perfect in order to have a family or keep a family, none of us would have a family. But a family is supposed to be a place where you don't have to be perfect in order to be accepted. Family's supposed to be a place where it's okay not to be okay. Family's supposed to be a group of people that you can let know, hey, I'm not okay. I'm not well. I'm not good. I'm feeling some things. I, I, I know I'm not supposed to feel. I'm a bit angry. You know, I, I've got this going on in my life. I, I'm struggling. You know, I, I, just, I just want you to know I'm not okay. Many of us grew up in churches. It was not okay to not be okay. So people pretended and people forced it and we put on a face We acted like everything was good at home. We acted like everything was good in our heart. We acted like everything was good in our mind because we didn't understand the way the family of God is supposed to be. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay. This is a place it's supposed to be okay to struggle and that you don't have to pretend and you don't have to put a face on. You don't have to perform. Family is supposed to be a place where you can be welcomed regardless of your behavior. But at the same time, when your behavior is out of line, you don't get affirmed and you don't get approved of your behavior. But yet you're welcome. You're welcome, but you're not approved. That's family. Family is a place where there's no relational insecurities, or there's not supposed to be any relational insecurities. Family's supposed to be a place where, hey, you know what? I know where I stand with you. I, I, I'm good with you. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what I do, regardless of what you do, hey, we're secure. We're family. We're in this together. We're in this for the long haul. I'm not walking away from you. You're not walking away from me. I'm not severing ties with you. You're not severing ties with me. There's relational security. I don't have to wonder where are we at? Are we good? Are we bad? Are we on solid ground? Are we on shaking ground? You know, are we good? Are we bad? Are we in the middle? Is it hot? Is it cold? You know, there, there's no such thing, or there should be no such thing as relational insecurity within the family. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, I'm gonna talk to you about some really difficult things, but we're okay. We're okay. We're family. And this is how families deal with things. We're gonna talk about this because we're different and we're not gonna create distance and we're not gonna be indecent. Families are different, but yet they can gather around the same table together. And so he, he, he continues on, he says, my brothers and sisters, some, I love this, I love how the apostle, the apostle Paul rolls. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Let me, let me tell you what wouldn't have worked. You know, if Paul were still alive today, what wouldn't work is if you, you, you texted Paul or you called Paul, took Paul to lunch, said, Paul, I'm gonna tell you something, but don't tell anybody I told you. <laughs> Paul wants you to be praying about something, but I didn't tell you. And Paul would then write a letter, get up and say, hey, I talked to Jim the other day at Cracker Barrel. And Jim told me some of the knuckleheaded things that some of you all are doing. That's what he did. He said, hey, listen, I want to tell you. I've talked to some people in Chloe's house, and they've told me some of the craziness that's going on. And so he's talking to them about this. He calls out their drama. He calls out the fact that some of them cannot get along. And so he encourages them to be one, to be unified among the things that are most important. To be unified in all things, that, that's an impossibility, and that's untenable, and that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being in agreement. He's talking about being unified around the things that matter most. We should be able to. And it should be expected that the local church can rally around what's most important. Like things like this. In the beginning, God. That's something we should all be able to agree on. Now, what happens after that? How long it took? Was it literal days? Figurative days? Was it metaphor, allegory? Hey, we can talk about that. Read books about that. Debate that. That's fun and dandy. But we ought to all be able to agree. In the beginning, God. We ought to all be able to agree that sin came in, destroyed everything, separated us from God. Sin broke something in me. Sin broke something in you. Sin broke something in the world. But when we could not get to God, God came to us, sent Jesus, the sinless Savior, to die for sinners. He was buried. He was raised on the third day so sinners could be made right with God. He ascended back to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father where he is right now making intercession for all of us. And one day he's coming again. He's going to take everything wrong with the world and he's going to make it right. And Paul said, at least right there, we should be able to agree on what's most important. Because if we agree on what's most important, we can put away all the silly stuff, the secondary things, the less important things that we don't agree on. We agree on what's most important so we never compromise our unity. Even though we even see some things differently. And so the reason this is so so big of a deal is because their disunity was mission critical. Remember Jesus said, I pray that you be one so that... Non-believers may believe. He knows this. And that's why Paul's writing about it. Because when you are fighting against believers, you aren't fighting for unbelievers. When when church people are fighting with church people, let me tell you who they're looking at. They're looking at church people. And we've taken our eyes off the fields that are ready for harvest. When church people are fighting with church people and caught up in drama and caught up in pettiness. And he said, she said, and I don't like them. And I tell you, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Let me tell you who I'm not thinking about. We're not thinking about unbelievers. We're not called to fight believers. We're called to fight for unbelievers, to see unbelievers become believers. And so Paul knew that this was so important. So he, he, he goes on, he, he writes in chapter three, he says, brothers and sisters, again, we're family. I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now. He introduces us, if you've ever been around church people or been around the church, you've probably heard these two terms before, spiritual and worldly. How many of you all have heard, you know, people, they're spiritual, oh, they're worldly, they're spiritual, they're worldly. And and so here's what Paul does. He surfaces the problem. And the problem in Corinth wasn't, you know, a particular issue, but it was something more than that. The problem was immaturity. Immaturity. He surfaces the immaturity and says out of this immaturity are all these other problems, these issues. Now, the issues are important, but the real problem beneath all of those issues is an issue of maturity versus immaturity. And Paul looks at him and, you know, he writes to them he says, hey, listen, I just want to tell you, you're not spiritual. And time out, question mark. What does that even mean? I've heard all my life, I've heard Christians say these types of things. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, they're so spiritual. Spiritual. i tell you, every time, every time they sing, it's so spiritual. I tell you, I love his preaching, it's spiritual. I'll tell you one thing about that church, it's spiritual. What what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Their family, everybody in their family is spiritual. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? And do you mean the same thing that the New Testament says about the matter? What does it mean to be spiritual? And Paul's gonna tell us what it means to be spiritual. He's also gonna tell us what it means to be worldly. And so he's talking to, again, a group of Christians whose their life is a mess. Now, change within the church can happen slow for some people and can happen, you know, more quickly for others. But he's talking to a group of people that are in process. And again, family is a place to be in process. It's it's a place of development. Some people get there faster than others. And, And so he says, hey, listen, I wish you were spiritual, but you're not, you're worldly. Now, when I grew up in church, I thought basically the definition of being worldly was you just didn't enjoy life. I mean, you enjoyed life. That's what worldly was. You just had fun. Worldly was fun. Christians. Spiritual, not fun. That, that, that was basically the takeaway. If you, if you want to have, have fun, be worldly. Be a worldly, and, you know. If you, if you want to if you, if you be spiritual, just, hey, just, just get ready. It's miserable. It's going it's to be terrible. Calendar's going to open wide open. Friday night, Saturday night, whew, you ain't got nothing to do. No place to be. You know? And that's kind of how a lot of people thought about spiritual and worldly, but, but basically here's what Paul's gonna say. Worldly is when you take your cues, relational cues, behavioral cues. It's when I take my cues from anyone or anything other than Jesus. That's worldly. See, we, we love to think worldly is a particular type of behavior. You know, it's 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 down there rubbing the bottom of the gutter. But Paul would say if you're mistreating someone, you're worldly. If you're withholding forgiveness from someone, you're worldly. If you're slandering someone behind their back, you're worldly. If you're gossiping about someone, if you're maligning their character, if you're casting doubt on their motive, you're worldly. And there may not be anything else scandalous going on in your life, but if you are at odds with somebody relational, Paul would say, you are immature and worldly. And so he goes on. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food. Some of you have heard this verse before. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. He said, you know what? He said, I had to give you a little bottle. I had to give you the little bo- 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 bur, bur, bur. a little bottle. Open up. He said, I had to do that. He said, I wish I could have just cut a big ribeye open for you, but I couldn't. He said, I had to give you a bottle. And when you see a baby with a bottle, it's charming. But you see an adult with a bottle, It's disturbing. Paul would say, hey, I-, I want to give you meat. <laughs> I wish you were eating meat, but you're still on the bottle. And so, th- this is so this is so important. Paul introduces us to a brand new paradigm of how to see the world and how to see the church and how to see Christians specifically. Paul would say the paradigm is there's two types of people in the world. There's Christian and there's non-Christian. And Christians exist to see non-Christians become Christian. That's it, 101, Christianity. There's Christian and non-Christian, and Christians exist to see non-Christians become Christian. But underneath the classification of Christian, Paul would say there's two types. There's mature and immature. There's spiritual and there's worldly. And so Paul says it's not a hierarchy of value. It's not that a spiritual person is you know, more valuable to God or you know, more important to God. It's not that a spiritual person is better than somebody who's not spiritual. He says, no, you just need to understand there's two types of Christian. There's spiritual, there's worldly, there's mature, and there's immature. Now, also, what's really important, and I would love to come back one day and do a sermon on this because we totally get this, this, this thing wrong. And we blame preachers and we blame teachers and, and we blame somebody else. You know, Christians will say things like this. I just wish, I just wish they'd preach more meat. I just wish they'd preach more meat. So, here's the thing. Paul was there 18 months. He did not withhold anything from them. He, he did not hold back the secret things of God. He he did not put away the mysteries of God into some box to say, you're not ready for it. No, he, he gave them the full thing. But here's the thing. Milk and meat is not a matter of delivery. It is the difference in how it's received and applied. That's milk and meat. Because the same content can go out and it's milk for somebody and then it's meat for somebody else. Meat is about receiving it and applying it. So it's not about what they said. It's what you did and what I did with what they said that Paul would say. So he's talking about this, again, this maturity and this immaturity, this spiritual and this worldliness. And so they just couldn't process what Paul had taught them. And so he says to them, he says, you're still worldly. How do you know, Paul? What's the evidence? For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And then listen to this. I love this. Paul says, are you not acting like mere humans? He says, you're supposed to be children of God. You're supposed to be sons and daughters of God. You are the temples of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells inside of you. You're acting like mere humans. You're acting worldly. You're acting immature. Paul, again, how do you know? Because you're so jealous of each other. Let me tell you, jealousy will kill relationships. You already know this. But yet, it doesn't really solve much for many of us. It's more wicked, more cruel than the grave. Let me tell you how bad jealousy is. Jealousy in our hearts, most of the time it's so veiled we can't even see it in ourselves. We'll see the good in somebody else, and the good in somebody else's life will cause us to believe they're a bad person. The blessing in somebody else's life because of jealousy will cause us to believe they're a bad person. The promotion in somebody else's life, the wealth in somebody else's life, the favor in somebody else's life... The fact that somebody else is a different place in their life than what we are at the same place in life leads us to believe for some reason they're a bad person. It's like, hey, what do you, why do you hate that person so much? We can't be honest enough to say, that's because they got a great family. That would just be weird. I can't stand them. Why? I'll tell you, they got a great family. What? No, we can't be that honest about it. So we look at their great family and we look at their great house and we look at their great car and we look at their great job and we look at this and look at that. And all of a sudden jealousy down in our heart that we can't even see causes us to believe there's something wrong with them. That's how bad jealousy is. Old Testament story. Joseph sold into slavery, almost killed by his brothers because of jealousy. Jealousy will cause you to push people away. It will cause you to wound people in ways that you never thought you would wound people. You have no legitimate happiness for somebody else's happiness when you're jealous. They got the job. They got the promotion. Their kids got in. Your kids didn't. Can you be happy about it for them? They're happy. Can you be happy about their happiness? Let me tell you how jealousy often reveals itself. Judgmentalism. We drive by their house. I bet bet they're some of the most arrogant people. What? Have you met? No, but look at that house. You can't be humble with a house like that. Pull up beside somebody at the red light. He's driving a convertible. You he think he's a jerk? <laughs> he is. What do he do? Well, look at him. Now we can't say that. That would just be too blatantly honest. But that hey, he says when you do that, you're acting like a mere human. You're acting worldly being a child immature people don't like to see other people recognized or see other people praise you know this was the point of the sermon i was going to tell you a great story about shepherd and Grayson, but i asked them this morning and they told me that i could not tell you a story about shepherd and Grayson. <laughs> but for those of you who are parents and you have multiple kids or grandparents and you have multiple grandkids and or you're an aunt or uncle or you just know kids you know how immature kids can be and how petty they can be and you brag on one and the other's like what about me this is what Paul's saying. You're acting like mere humans. You're quarreling. Everything you do has to be an issue. You can't get along with anybody because everything they do, everything they say, you're evaluating, getting your critique, and getting everything is such a big deal. Because you're so petty, you're a child, you're petulant. You're a mere human, he would say. It's like, wow, Paul. It's like you're reading our mail. It's like you're reading our text. It's like How do you know this? He just knows because this is the way we are. And so he's pointing to this idea. Immaturity breeds incompatibility. Let's all just say that out loud together. Immaturity breeds incompatibility. This is true in whatever relationship that we're in. Whether this, listen, married folks, an immature spouse or two immature spouses, incompatibility. You get one, you get a wife, you get a husband who's, you know, immature. I'm telling you, there's not going to be compatibility. And listen, you can try to tell them why there's incompatibility, but it's going to make it worse. Because they're immature. You, you take a parent who's immature. An immature mom, an immature dad trying to talk to a teenage daughter or a teenage son. It's going to create incompatibility. You take an employer who's immature. Immature. There's gonna be incompatibility with employee. It's true everywhere. Even within the church, wherever there's immaturity, there's incompatibility. People are gonna take their ball and go home. People are gonna be petty. People are gonna get upset about stupid things that people shouldn't get upset about. I'm not gonna be your friend anymore. Well, I'm not gonna be your friend anymore. Don't talk to me ever again. Take me out of your phone. Don't ever text me. I'm not gonna to respond to your text when you text me. So immaturity, Paul says, is the underlying issue for all the issues going on. So he, he writes the rest of the book and he's gonna write about lots of things. He's gonna write about their immorality. And he's gonna say, hey, your immaturity is causing a lack of morality. He's gonna to write to married people because immaturity in marriage is a big deal. Paul had a very high view of marriage, but for those of you who are single, you need to know this. This may be news to you, but Paul had a higher view of singleness. And so if you're single, reading 1 Corinthians would be a great read because Paul had a very high elevated idea for people when it came to them being single. And then he wrote about liberty because Christians, we have grace and we have liberty and there's some things that we can do and there's some things that we can partake in. But he says when immature people try to flex their liberty, sometimes they misuse their liberty and end up hurting themselves and hurt other people. So immaturity and liberty, man, sometimes that turns into irresponsibility. So he dealt with that. And then he talked about spiritual gifts. And, and nobody in the New Testament was more concerned with spiritual gifts than apparently the church at Corinth. They, they were so enthralled by the spiritual gifts. You know, the, spirit, you know, the gift of tongues, the gift of knowledge, the gift of healing, all that. And you can read about it in you know, chapter 12 and also in chapter 14. And, and, and he writes all about that. And he says, listen, y'all got a problem here. And it's, it, the problem is you're missing the point. And so he addresses all those things and then he says, I will show you the most excellent way. He said, I'm gonna gonna show you what maturity looks like. I'm gonna show you what spirituality looks like. I'm gonna show you what a Jesus follower is supposed to look like. I'm gonna show you the key to every relationship that you have that will keep it from being torn apart. And so he's gonna show us, he's gonna define for us what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be mature. And so you've heard these verses before. But I guarantee you, more times than not, you've heard these verses divorced from the context from which they were written. And so this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding God, a clanging simple. He says, listen, let me, tell you what. let me tell you what maturity is. Maturity is love. Let me tell you what spirituality is. It's when you love people the way you're supposed to love people. That, that's what it is. And he says, so, without love, it doesn't matter what you say. As a spouse... Hey, you can be right, but if you don't have love, it's lost in translation. Mom, dad, if you're speaking without love, you can be right, but it's gonna be lost in translation. Christians, when you talk to each other, hey, hey, if you lack love, nobody's gonna care. Well, I, gotta, I just gotta say it. Well, you say it, but it's not gonna do any good because it's lost. You can be right, but if you don't have love, you're as good as wrong. That's what Paul's saying. And then he goes on, he says, so if I have the gift of prophecy, man, when I get the, get the prophecy, that just sounds cool. I've, hello, I'm Trevor. I've got the gift of prophecy. it <laughs> would be great. Hey, I've got the gift of prophecy. I can fathom all mysteries. I know all the mysteries of God. God has shared with me the secret things. I've right, got all that. And he says, hey, you you, you got it all. You know it all. I've got all knowledge. And if I have all faith, I can even move mountains. But I don't have love? He says, I'm nothing. Hey, without love, it doesn't matter what you know. Without love, they stop talking about how much you read, stop talking about how much you prayed, stop talking about how many conferences you went to, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. Stop talking. If you don't have love, it counts for nothing. You, you can have a spotless theological catechism of things that you believe that you're supposed to believe, but if you don't have love, it just doesn't matter. He says, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. He says, you can be the most disciplined person, say yes to the things you're supposed to say yes to, no to the things you're supposed to say no to, and even in all of your discipline of being the greatest rule keeper in the history of the world, if you don't have love, it matters nothing. He says, so let let me show you what a spiritual person looks like. Let me tell you what a spiritual person does. Let me tell you what maturity looks like. He says, maturity, spirituality, love is patient. It's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It's patient. You you go at the speed of somebody else. If they're not traveling as fast as you, you don't run off and leave them. You go back and you walk with them. You have a long fuse. You you don't harbor ill feelings because they do this or that. No, you have kindness. That's what mature people do. They have kindness. You know what kindness is? It's when I care more about you than I do me. That's kindness. I'm interested more in what I can do for you than I am what you do for me. Envy? Hey, you, you don't do that. You don't, you're able to celebrate other people's wins. You're able to be happy about other people's happiness. That's what mature people do. That's what spiritual people do. You don't boast. You don't make yourself the center of the story. It's not all about you. You don't do that. It's not proud because pride puts you at the center of everything. You're at the middle of everything. You're always evaluating everybody and everything based on how it relates to you. When you have pride, you're there in the middle. But mature people put away pride and they take themselves out of the middle of the circle and they put everybody else in the center of the circle. Now everything is interpreted with them in the middle and it becomes about them rather than us. And so he goes on, he says, mature people, spiritual people, love, it does not dishonor others. It does, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't dishonor people because we recognize that people's value is based on the fact that God created them in the image of himself. People's value isn't depending on what they believe or how they behave, no, God establishes people's value. So you don't dishonor people, you're not self-seeking because that just undermines every relationship. You're not easily angered, you're not petty, it's not like everything sets you off. Can you believe that? Look, 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 look. look they posted, look at that, look at that, what is it? They went to dinner, can you believe that? We've never been to dinner craziness. This is, this is the way. He says, don't do that. That's, that's mere humans. He says, this type of stuff is the true measurement of maturity. He says, maturity, spirituality, love keeps no record of wrong. How many times have you heard Christians say this? I'll tell you what. This is the third time they've done this to me. This is the, this, I, I, I was sitting there the other day and I thought, you know what? I can think of at least five times this has happened. That's what immature children do. That's what worldly people do. Paul says, but mature spiritual people, it's like every time someone disappoints you or offends you, it's like the first time all over again. And then you forgive and move on. He says, love does not delight in evil because how can mature people or spiritual people celebrate or be entertained by what breaks God's heart? How can we be entertained by immorality? How can we celebrate immorality when we know that it's hurting them and hurting the people around them? But we rejoice with the truth because we believe the truth sets people free. But we believe that the truth ought to be spoken in love. And listen, truth is not about you feeling better about yourself. I tell you what, I told them the truth and I feel better for it. Well, it was all about you. Truth is about helping someone be better. Truth is about helping someone else get free. If telling someone the truth is about you rather than them, <laughs> you've missed the point. He says, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. He said, that's, that's it. It covers offenses. It gives the best you know, possible explanation for when people mess up or when people fall short. And in the end, mature people don't walk away. Spiritual people don't walk away. They don't sever the relationship. They don't say, you're not my friend anymore. Hey, we're, we're, we're not in the circle together anymore. No, that's not what Christians do. And so Paul brings it full circle, and this is where we end it. He said, so when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, listen, all the boys in the room, both the older ones and the younger ones both the grown ones and the yet to be fully grown ones. There's a time when every boy should decide to become a man. For all the ladies in the room, there should be a time when every girl decides to be a woman. There should be a time when every child decides to be an adult. And Paul said, there was a time that I decided I'm not going to be the center of my universe anymore. I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to take my ball. I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to raise little things and make them big things. I'm not going to be petty. I'm not going to be super sensitive. I'm not going to hold grudges. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to give people a cold shoulder. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm just not going to be that person anymore because that's a child. That's a mere human. He says, I am a son of God. I am a child of God. I am a temple of God's spirit, and God's spirit lives in me. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of me, Paul would say. So I've put away those childish things. And then he said this. He said, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And of course you've heard this, but the greatest of these is love. So I think there's some things we can learn from this. I think there's some things that Paul wants us to take home from this. First, the church can't withhold love and extend influence at the same time. It can't be done. Christians can't do it either because Christians are the church. You, you can't do it. You can't, you can't withhold forgiveness. You can't withhold grace. You can't be petty. You can't gossip and extend your influence at the same time. Can't be done. I can't do it, you can't do it. The more mature our faith grows, the more our love for others will show. That's a mature faith. Mature faith isn't how high you raise your hands, it's how you show your love for other people people that are different, people that are in your life up close and personally. And then finally, the greatest kind of faith results in the deepest kind of love. And Paul would say, That's spirituality, that's maturity, that's love. The greatest kind of faith is the deepest kind of love. So when it comes to the Corinthians, with their immaturity and their backbiting and their gossiping and their factions and their disunity, I don't want to be like that church. I wanna be a church where our faith grows and our love shows. I want to be a church that doesn't take secondary things and makes them primary. I don't want to be a church that's petty. I don't want to be a church that bickers. I don't want to be a church that gets, you know, excited about drama. I I don't want to be that church. I want to be a church that gives people a reason on the outside to believe. And I want every relationship that we have with each other to take our cues from the most important relationship that we all have. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads. With all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, Heavenly Father, would you take your word and speak to us? As Paul would say, may it become meat in our own souls. May we receive it and apply it. From middle school to high school, to college, to single, to married, whatever season of life we're in, God, we, If we claim to follow you, why would we ever settle for acting like mere humans? We are a people that are called to maturity and spirituality that is incredibly practical and attractive. So God, speak to us this morning. Show us what we need to see and let us hear what we need to hear for Christ's sake. And everybody said, amen. Hey, let's stand together. And as we're standing, we're going to sing one last song together. And I pray that you, as we sing together, would just open up your heart and open up your mind and and let God speak. And if there's some relationships you're at odds with, if, if there's some people that you've had a cold shoulder towards or your heart's a little bitter towards, to just bring that to God this morning and confess it to him and ask God to break that in your life. If there's immaturity, to break that in your life. If there's worldliness, to break that in our lives. So God, speak to us in this moment.